Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of The Hopeful Environmentalist. Today we have an amazing guest speaker on to discuss climate anxiety, its effects, and how to cope with it. To be honest, I deal with climate anxiety a lot, so I'm super excited for this episode. We also talk about important and crucial topics like climate doomism, effective climate communication, and so much more. She's a climate psychologist, a researcher who has published works looking at the effects of the climate crisis on mental health. She's a climate activist, a public speaker, and a writer. She's given a TEDx talk on the topic of climate change communication. She's one of the co-leaders of the Hero UK Climate Justice Circle, and she sits on the Ecology Climate Committee. While she's extremely passionate about the environmental justice issues and the climate crisis and its impacts on mental health, she also focuses her campaign efforts on a rapid and just fossil fuel phase-out as a champion for the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty Initiative. I'm so excited and happy to introduce our amazing guest speaker, Jessica Kletchka. So hi, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so I think the first kind of thing I want to discuss is what is eco-anxiety? Because I know so many people and I've been hearing so many people are dealing with this and they just don't know a true definition of what it is. Mm, so eco-anxiety, you know, it looks different for different people and there's still, you know, the science and the research is evolving, you know, month by month, year by year on the topic. So generally, we can say that eco-anxiety is a feeling of dread and fear about the future, you know, based on the planetary scale crisis we find ourselves in because of the climate crisis. And eco-anxiety or climate anxiety can look like many different things. It can look like being unable to sleep properly. It can mean uh, difficulty focusing on, you know, work, school, university, whatever it is you're doing. Or, you know, kind of losing interest or not feeling very passionate about the things you usually care about. Not feeling motivated to spend time with friends or, you know, going about your hobbies. So really, the symptoms are very uh, similar to depression. And in fact, if we don't receive the support we need, uh, then eco-anxiety can result in mental illness such as depression, generalized anxiety disorder, and many other things. Um, but it's important to note that eco-anxiety in itself is not a mental illness as per definition. Um, as a psychologist, um, mental illness is mental illness starts when an issue starts impacting our daily life, right? So in itself, experiencing eco-anxiety doesn't mean that you're mentally ill. Really, it's a healthy reaction to the crisis we're facing. But we should still take it very, very seriously because, in fact, a lot of young people uh, especially are very much affected by eco-anxiety. And in fact, there's been some research from the University of Bath um, which showed that up to half of young people, and that's young people in general, not just activists, up to half of young people actually feel that their day-to-day -day life is impacted by eco-anxiety. So those findings are really, really serious. So, you know, eco-anxiety is something we should take serious, not just as mental health professionals, but society as a whole. Yeah, I, I feel like I resonated with a lot of that. Um, as an activist, like when I started learning about everything that's happening with the climate crisis, I, and it pushed me to do good as well. Like I stopped driving my car and I started using public transport, but then it became like overwhelming. Like I can only use public transport. And if I use a car, this is what I'm doing. And I'll be like the whole car ride. I'm like, oh my gosh, what am I doing? Like I'm killing the earth. Mm -hmm. 
um, and like, dealing with that. Yeah, it's very difficult. And, you know, we see more and more that governments and companies really use and abuse eco-anxiety and the fact that we speak about it more openly now to shift responsibility for the climate crisis and climate action onto individuals. Sure, it's really good to change your behavior and we need people to change their behavior if they're able to do so. But, you know, the reality is that behavior change, individual behavior change is very closely tied to financial privilege, time privilege. You know, not everyone has a zero waste store in their town. Not everyone can just stop using their car. You know, if you are able to, you should absolutely make those changes in your life. But, you know, I see very often that normal people are being shamed into, you know, feeling guilty for the climate crisis, despite not having the resources to take meaningful action. So really, we should, you know, address governments very directly and, you know, make it very clear that the responsibility lies with them. And that was also the outcome of some research I was involved in with Imperial College London and, you know, so uh, 22 other young people around the world. Uh, we wrote a study on young people's mental health issues surrounding the climate crisis. And really what we found is that one of the major things contributing to climate anxiety is government inaction. So really what we need to see is ambitious climate policies and as well as taking young people more seriously in their concerns. But yeah, you know, the whole debate between individual and systemic change is a little bit misleading because in order to change our behavior, we need the system, in, the systems in place that, you know, enable us to live more sustainably. Yeah. And I, I think about like with that, like COP27 coming up and, you know, not having youth being present and not having like the ability to get there and thinking about people in the global south especially who are trying to get there and trying to have their voices heard and say like well we're experiencing this anxiety we want and we're experiencing this harm and we want to be able to speak and they can't even do that so that kind of like made me think of go right to that um yeah definitely a very important point to raise uh cop is a very exclusionary space and we saw at cop 26 that a lot of people you know from the global south from global majority countries didn't have the opportunity to really partake in those very crucial discussions and unfortunately we're seeing the same pattern now and especially with cop happening in egypt you know it's very unsafe for lgbtqia activists it's very unsafe for activists in general many activists you know are imprisoned in egypt and then we've also got the issue of economic barriers with hotel rooms starting at, at $800 a night, which obviously, you know, creates huge hurdles for many, many activists, especially those working with grassroots groups, myself included. So, yeah, it, it's very difficult. What we really need to see is really active involvement of, you know, activists, especially from the global south bursaries, financial support for them to enter those spaces. And, you know, even when they enter those spaces, they're very often still not being being listened to. So really what we need to do is change the whole culture of these spaces and make them more youth oriented. Because really young people, we are, you know, future leaders and we are going to see the worst of this crisis. So really there should be more attention on both our well-being, but also youth empowerment. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And it's, I think like the spaces are beginning to start to open, but they're still not where they need to be. Like I, I've seen yeah. a lot of, since I've started college, I've seen a lot of um, youth councils and stuff open up, but still there's that 
sense of like, are, are they being, are, is it helpful? Is it, are we being listened to when we do voice our opinions or are we just, I know I've seen a lot of activists talk about like, they're just the new advertisements and it's like that dealing with that as your mental health is like with your mental health as well is like so demeaning and it's hard. Um, so how would you recommend that people cope with this eco-anxiety and their eco-anxiety? Honestly, the number one thing I want to recommend people, and it may sound a bit trivial, but honestly, just do the things that bring you joy. Do the things uh, do the things you enjoy and really prioritize, you know, not neglecting them. When I first learned about the extent of the climate crisis, I fell into a really bad depression. That was during my second year at uni. And I completely neglected, you know, spending time with my friends, uh, doing the things I loved because everything seemed so small and, you know, not meaningful in the face of, you know, the challenge we're facing. And that really made it a lot more difficult for me to build resilience. So I threw myself into activism, you know, um, you're probably familiar with the uh, fight, flight, freeze response. I was a big fighter and really did activism to the point of burnout that's not a sustainable way to do activism so now doing climate work full-time it's a lot more important for me you know to take these measures to both deal with my eco-anxiety but also make my work sustainable in the long term because really this is a long-term fight we're fighting so the things I do is spend time in nature and really remind myself what it is we're fighting for, spend time with my friends, my partner, play music, do sports, do all the things that I enjoy and really lean into them and really learn to appreciate them and practice gratitude for, you know, what we still have every day. But really, the best thing we can do about eco-anxiety is to take action, to join a climate group, to, you know, contribute contribute a bit every day. Uh, it really helps me to, you know, wake up every morning with a purpose, knowing that I'm playing a part in changing this world for the better. So to everyone who is feeling stuck in their fear and their anxiety, building community and, you know, finding your tribe is really what will get you out of that dark place. But we shouldn't overdo it either. And there's this beautiful saying that's very popular in activist circles at the moment, which is rest is resistance. And I really believe that rest is not only crucial to sustaining the work we do, but also a direct, you know, protest against the fast paced, productive, you know, capitalist system we find ourselves in. I'm really happy that you brought up community and also rest um, because I know for me, especially like when I came into the climate space, I felt very like alone and I still do feel a little bit alone. And even though I know I'm surrounded by so many people who care, I just feel alone sometimes. And mm. joining these different groups has really opened my eyes to like, I'm not alone in this and no one's alone. We're all dealing with something. We're all dealing with, most of us are dealing with a little bit of eco-anxiety um, and I really appreciate you bringing that up and discussing how community is super important and also rest because I feel like I don't allow myself to do that. I'm like, oh, if if I stop right now, the world is literally going to end. And that's obviously not true. But it's that feeling that we put on ourselves when we do deal with anxiety or other mental health issues. Um, it's being able to realize you're not alone in this and it's not all on your shoulders. And joining these communities you know, it correlates to that because if you realize you're not alone in this and that there's other people doing this as mm -hmm. well, you know, we can, we can all work together. We can all pass, you know, that 
that burden on sometimes, okay, someone else will work on this while I take a break and not experience this burnout that a lot of us experience. Yeah, that's a really good point. And, you know, I used to think similarly, um, you know, when I was in organizing and campaigning full time, uh, whereas now I have a more even split between campaigning, academia and other things. But back then I was so deep into in that world that I was literally thinking if I take a step back, everything's going to gonna fall apart. And what I learned over time is that that kind of thinking really reinforces the individualistic, you know, really harmful societal dynamics we find ourselves in. So really, you know, usually when we step back, someone else steps up just out of necessity because that's the the situation we're in and that's the beautiful movement we have built but also one thing I very often try and emphasize you know using my social media platform and when I do teaching is that this work is still you know carried by too few people and we need people to become activists the more people you know join the climate movement the less intense it's going to be for the rest of us you know the less risk we face you know with burnout So it's really the best thing you can do to support the climate movement is join and become an activist yourself. Yeah, I love that. I I love the ability to encourage other people to join this space because I feel like the most welcomed I've ever felt is in the climate space. And Mm. no one really asks, like you, you can bring up your own background, you can bring up everything that you bring to the table, but no one forces you, no one makes you like, no, you have to do this or you're not a good environmentalist or not a good activist. Mm. I feel like in those big companies, they're the ones who tell you that. They're the ones who say, oh, well, that's on you. But us in the local, like little, more, like smaller level, we are more accepting of each other. And I love that. Yeah, definitely. I, I definitely see some gatekeeping in movements, especially, you know, the more the groups that are more focused on individual behavior change but i can also see you know patterns of groups really moving away from that and pushing more for political action and systemic change which is really encouraging to see i think even within the climate movement we've come a really long way in the, in the last five years or so yeah that's very yes very amazing to bring up as well there's definitely is gatekeeping um but i feel like again in the grassroots level we're definitely pushing away from that which is mm. where we need to be and where we should have been mm. So can you also discuss climate doomism? Because I recently heard that word and I was like, whoa, I definitely resonate with that. Mm, Yeah, definitely. So climate doomism is the belief that it's too late to act already on climate change and that we are pretty much guaranteed to face environmental and social collapse to an extent. And, you know, while social collapse to an extent, again, is fairly likely to happen in some areas of society really that framing is not very helpful because what it does is that it sends people down it causes something that we call eco paralysis which is a term i think is not great but that's the term that's being used in mental health circles at the moment and it basically means that you're so scared of climate change that you're unable to act you freeze you know and you're you're in such a deep state of shock that you don't see a way out of that state. And I, I have spoken to a lot of people who, you know, have read certain papers that say we face inevitable social collapse and climate collapse. And, you know, some very often those papers come from really well-meaning people, but the effect it has on, you know, the majority of the population is inaction, is depression, 
is hopelessness and really people don't know what they can do about it. So I've been doing quite a bit of research on effective climate communication with Imperial College London. And what we found is that people are most motivated by hopeful solution-based framings. So this is something that I've very actively implemented into my own communication and the way I communicate on social media in particular, because I found that climate doomism is very prevalent in young generations as well. And unfortunately, I've met you know parents who have lost you know, children to climate doomism who have, you know, who took their own lives because they didn't know a way out of it. And that's really, really tragic. So really, one of the best things we can do to motivate people to take action is remind them that it's not too late. The science says very clearly, you know, we're in a very dire situation. It's very urgent, but it's not too late. You know, we have all the solutions we need already. And the only thing that's missing is political will. And that's something we can do about. We can change that political will and we can, you know, chip away at politicians <laughs> until they really bow to our demands. And that's really something where, can we, where we can be most effective. But yeah, it's definitely not too late. And um, it's really important to, you know, stay optimistic uh, whilst also highlighting the urgency of the climate crisis. And that can be a difficult balance to strike sometimes. But, you know, it's difficult to get it right all the time, but it's very important to at least try. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I recently heard an activist, and I'm so sorry I forgot their name, um, but they discussed how it's like a privilege to be able to say it's too late. You know, people yeah. in the global South, it, it can't be too late. Like, you know, it needs to, it can't be too late for any of us, but for people who are being greatly impacted right now, it can't be too late. And we can't speak as if it is too late because then we won't act. And there's going to be unequal, we're already seeing unequal impacts and there's going to be greater unequal impacts between the rich and the people who are on the grounds doing things. Yeah, absolutely. And very often I see, you know, this narrative of it's too late pushed by politicians and companies who are actively benefiting from the climate crisis. That's why I often say, you know, by giving in to despair and by, by giving up in general, we are, you know, playing into the hands of those who are benefiting from this crisis, who do not want us to act. And, you know, while I understand that climate doomism for many people comes from a place of either ignorance or depression, we really have to keep in mind that by refusing to act because, you know, we made ourselves believe that it's too late, that's an act of betrayal, you know, of people in the global south with whom we should stand in solidarity, who we should actively support, because for them it's about, you know, survival. If it's, if it's your house underwater, if it's your family whose life is in danger, if it's your community and livelihoods that are being ripped apart, you can't just say, ah, oh, it's too late anyway, I'm not going to bother. So yeah, definitely, there's a lot of privilege behind being able to say, you know, I, I'm not going to act because I don't think there's any point in it. There's always a reason to act. And the climate crisis is not, you know, climate collapse is not something that there's, you know, a tipping point and suddenly the world will, you know, end. The climate crisis really 
you know, a continuum. And the more we take action now, the less bad it's going to be in the future. And the less action we take now, the worse it's going to be in 20 years. So really every action counts. And, you know, every piece of advocacy and activism, you know, makes a huge difference to, you know, communities around the world, and our communities as well, because obviously we're seeing the effects of the climate crisis on our doorsteps, you know, in Europe as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's increasingly so. Yeah. And it's it's so important to discuss like when we're talking about effective communication as well. And it's for me when I came into my program that I'm in now for my master's and doing science communication. And I was like, I came from this place of privilege. So it's like hard. It was hard for me to realize like, oh, how I communicate impacts other people and being Mm. able to step away sometimes and say, okay. I don't need to like I don't need to fill this space I need someone else to fill this space because it's their space and being able to realize that and be okay like it's not be okay with that be okay with saying it's not my space right here it's just making sure that everybody has the ability to have their voice heard and have their story heard and be able to represent themselves like I know for myself as a chronically ill person I don't want somebody speaking on my behalf, just like other people wouldn't want people speaking on their behalf. We all should have a seat at the table. And mm. able to allow someone else, like Indigenous people who have their then their knowledge to be able to say, no, this is not the right science. You know, this is this is what can actually help us. And being able to see how that impacts people's mental health and being ignored from these spaces has also... I had my eyes open to this in all the things I've been going to and listening to and understanding that how we communicate impacts people's health. Yeah, absolutely. And also important to note that when we, you know, talk about making space for the communities who are directly affected, those communities often know best what we're supposed to do but because they they don't navigate in the system of what we call science you know which really is a western system of science because there's indigenous science as well you know those voices are often not heard but the reality is when we look at you know biodiversity conservation alone uh, i think 80 percent of global biodiversity is protected by five percent of the population and that those five percent of the population are indigenous people so they, they really know best what to do so you know, going back to spaces like COP, we we need those voices to be heard because those people, they've been stewards of the land for thousands of years and they know what the land needs. They know what people need. And I'm a huge advocate of, you know, especially community empowerment from a policy perspective because communities are both, you know, more knowledgeable um, and also they tend to be more radical. So really empowering communities, both in terms of giving them a platform but also redistributing resources is one of the most effective things we can do for climate action. Yes, no, of course. And I, I forgot the term, what the loss and damage, is that? Loss the, and damage. Yes. And like hearing about that, I, again, that's a new term for me. And I really love being in the climate space because people are constantly educating other people and not, mm. oh, you didn't know that. Oh, that's bad on you. Like it's constantly, you're being educated and again, coming from a place place of privilege, I didn't know that about that until recently, Um, but being able to be educated and not like people look down at me for not knowing something Mm -hmm. or educating us actively, which I love um, as Mm. well. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. So I think another, just one of the last things I have and would like to know is for people who are dealing with climate anxiety, I know you discussed that it's not was it registered as a mental health 
disorder. Um, but yeah. can people still go to and seek therapy for climate anxiety? It's really difficult. I would say it depends on where you are. I don't know what it's like in the US. Uh, in the UK, I don't believe you can get therapy for climate anxiety on the NHS. You could, you know, go to cognitive behavioral therapy or psychotherapy and, you know, try and find someone who is aware of those issues. One of the things we also found in our research with Imperial College was that a lot of mental health professionals are not very educated on these issues, which is quite problematic because they are actually quite prevalent. You know, many of the mental health issues people might be in treatment for could actually stem from the climate crisis. And we've only found the language for it in recent years, you know, when we learned about eco-anxiety and climate anxiety, climate grief and all those things. Um, so, yeah, it it is quite difficult. And many people will see themselves, you know, forced to go private and pay for therapy in order to get the support they need. And again, you know, that has a lot to do with privilege. And that's something we need to advocate for. There is a really great organization in the UK called the Climate Psychology Alliance. And what they do is they offer free therapy sessions to activists. So that's for people who struggle with mental health issues or are climate professionals like myself. You can get, I think, up to three free te uh, therapy sessions with the Climate Psychology Alliance. So that's really worth checking out. Other than that, there's lots of really good community initiatives people can um, look up, such as climate cafes. I think they're a worldwide thing now so there are circles of people who meet either in person or digitally to you know share about their climate emotions and provide you know support to each other you know from a community community perspective and as someone who's done research on you know communities and community dynamics finding a community that understands you you know is you know it can't replace therapy but it goes a long way so I would really recommend seeking out those things. And another really good initiative is the Resilience Circles, the Resilience Project, which I'm actually part of at the moment. I'm currently um, participating in an eight-week uh, resilience course where um, we're literally, you know, learning resilience strategies, how to cope with climate anxiety as a climate professional. And those uh, circles are... I think there's a few in the UK and also an international one, which is online. And I'm pretty sure they're going to do, you know, future um, future programs. So it's really worth checking them out. I think they're our resilience project on Instagram. Awesome. I definitely will look those up. I have not seen any of those, which I need to get on right now. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think also in the US, there's a great organization who... Um, who I'm in touch with called the Eco Psychology Initiative and they also run really great trainings on overcoming climate anxiety. Uh, I just finished a course with them called, um, it was basically a climate psychology course from you know more of a uh, mental health and spiritual perspective. So they are doing really great work. It's really worth checking them out. Yes, I will definitely check them out because I, like I mentioned, so, like I deal with a lot of eco anxiety mm. personally, and I know a bunch of people in the U.S. who also do. So I will mm. be sharing these tips with them and encouraging yeah. them to listen to this episode. Also worth noting that the Eco Psychology Initiative, their courses are, you know, 
available internationally. Awesome. I love that. We love, love inclusivity. <laughs> um, <laughs> so is there anything else that you wanted to add or finish up with? Ooh, well, then that's a very good question. <laughs> it, yeah, you know, in summary, I would just say the best way to tackle climate anxiety is to, you know, take action and actively start building the future you want to see and that you dream about and do that, you know, in coalition and in community with other people, because, you know, only we, we won't be able to change the world, you know, by acting individually or in isolation. What we really need is to build community and to overcome the societal structures which have, you know, torn apart our community and coalitions. So really finding a climate group and a community you resonate with is you know, something I really recommend. Yes, that back to that community, really mm. that community, building that community and relying on that community to support you and you support other people is yeah. huge. Um, so yeah, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. This was awesome. Great. Thank you so much for having me. It was really nice chatting to you. And that wraps up this episode of The Hopeful Environmentalist. I really hope that you learned something about climate anxiety and eco-anxiety and how to deal with it and how to learn how to heal and be able to be an activist while also protecting yourself and your mental well-being. Again, thank you so much for listening to this episode and remember to stay hopeful and create positive change.